This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Yes, today warmer than yesterday and tomorrow will be warmer than today. My hope in doing research last night on it, and again, you're not going to get me uh, boxed in in this uh, climate change game. It's real. It's changed. It needs to be uh, dealt with. Technology can do that. We need to look at other alternative forms of energy. All that is fair. We'll never fully eliminate fossil fuels. We won't. Um, Tractors are needed for them. Transport trucks, combines. Can you imagine the size of a battery? Someone um, put a video up of the size of a battery it would take for basically an 18-wheeler, like, you know, the kind that transport food from point A to B. And this thing, like this thing is massive. They basically haven't built many batteries like this yet. Some EV batteries for a giant transport truck. So those cars, look, if you want to piddle off to the grocery store or the gym or the pub or the go train station or wherever, and you want an electric car, fantastic. We do need to make those more prominent, more affordable, um, incentivize it. But, uh, but yeah. So I've said this, and I think this has been a bit of a running theme this week. The climate change is real, but we can't get weather confused with climate change. We, we get told, don't do that in the winter. It's minus 20. It just snowed a ton last night. Right. Got it. So it does not. You'll hear people say, oh, how much climate change can there really be? It's cold and minus 22. It's the extremes. And it's the sort of reverb effect of those extremes of weather as to what happens next. And cities can prep for um, climate disasters, right? Storm sewers, uh, floodplains and whatnot. What you do if you've got extreme drought. But um, we can't get weather confused with climate change. It is hot. This I just hope it doesn't get as hot. I... I, I hope, I don't know if you uh, you uh, olds were around in 1987. I just hope it doesn't get as hot in the next two days as 1987. You know, when it was five-day stretch in late July of 32, 32 and a half, 32, 33, and 34.1 degrees in Toronto. And it was, uh, by the way, over 32 degrees twice earlier in that particular month. We we had nine days out of 31 in July of 1987 that were over 32 degrees. We got four or five uh, this July. And my recollection was, didn't we have a high of like 19 about two weeks ago? So again, climate vis-a-vis weather. I mean, I hope somehow if you survive the great heat, heat flood of uh, the heat wave of 1987 and are here listening to my voice, how did you do it? How did how did you swing it off six years later? How'd you get through August? You remember you. How could you forget? Come on. There's dates in time that you would never forget. And that massive heat wave that happened before uh, climate change was taught six days straight in August, where we were over thirty one and a half degrees in 1993. I was a university student living with six guys and we huddled together at night. and We didn't know how we were going to make it. We didn't know if we would make it to see the next year's semester. 31 and a half degrees on August 26th. And we thought we I remember holding each other that night, seven men in a, in a house on Richmond Street in London. And we said, how will we pull this off? And then the next day was 34.4 degrees. And we thought, oh, God, guys, we thought the worst was over. And then it's not. Anyway, um, yeah, if you're uh, <laughs> I, I, I will make sure my 79 and 77 year old parents aren't out weeding for seven hours. 
Um, but let's uh, ixnay on the danger day or whatever and uh, go enjoy the day. Play golf, play tennis, go for a walk, go for a run. Um, the sweat is a wonderful thing for your body. It's telling your body. It's your body's way of saying, thank you. I'm breathing. Sweat is good. I know I sweat when I have, you know, too much uh, too much taco sauce on a taco, but I'm an excessive sweater that way. That's just how it, it works. Um, high temperature today will be uh, 31. Again, if you survived the heat waves of 87 and 93, again, God knows how you did it. I have no clue how you pulled it off. But either way, uh, we've got something going uh, going into the future in the next two days. Hold each other tight. Loved ones close, children even closer, and we'll make it. We'll make it to Saturday when it'll be only 26 degrees. It's summer in Ontario. I don't know what to tell you. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. I don't know how you relate, uh, Sheba, to random crime, but I saw this story. Catherine McDonald did a story about a uh, Tuesday 12 15 p.m lunchtime basically a murder and it's it's a parking lot at shooter and sherborne i started watching the story on uh, it was, i was watching global news at six on tuesday night and uh and this is before obviously the passing of the police dog because that happened later that evening so this is the big crime story of the day and i'm like i'm looking at it going well i know that lot i knew it before she even said it was shooter and sherborne and when i've gone to concerts at massey hall yeah. uh i park there and it's a it's a walk. It's near a church. I know exactly where the church is. And basically before 1215, you know, people might be wandering around having their lunch time. Right. Yes. And police say shots were heard in the parking lot. They found a man in a vehicle with gunshot wounds. And then later he was pronounced dead. And I know when people say like you saw what did you see in the fall in October? I was at the Blue Jays playoff game when you texted all these photos of carjacking or an attempted carjacking right in front oh, of you. Oh yes. Yes, that happened to me. That yeah, but that was in Mississauga. In that Mississauga. In, yes. But I but I think people are sometimes like, "Oh well, um random crime. It does rattle us, right? The the, oh. the mom dying in Leslieville oh. feel it's random, it's an accident." And I always yeah. think, but I think that's the rarity, right? Like, I don't know the data in front of me, but I know we've given it out before where somebody who's going to get killed is going to be targeted. And it's not like the police were very clear to emphasize in a case like this, Sheba, that the that the it was not a random shooting. Somebody's not going around and blasting people in parking lots. But I'm telling you, that rattled me because I've sat in that lot. And I, th- I don't know if we do this more than we did 20 years ago. I've sat in that lot and thought I'm early to meet my friend. So I'm not going to wander around the streets. I'm just going to sit here, catch up with an email or two, read an article, make a quick phone call to somebody, text somebody. And I'm going to sit in my car and wait by myself. And so when I think about that, that I probably do that more than I did, because what would you do 20 years ago? You'd need like newspapers or a magazine or you'd get like drive through food or whatever. But sitting in a parking lot alone on killing time because you arrived early the last thing you want to think about is three cars down. Somebody's going to wander over, see his target Ugh. and, and blast, blast his brains out with a bullet. It's really, really unsettling. There's so much unsettling that's happened in our city. And in the how last brazen. Year. Oh, absolutely. But how brazen at 12, 15 PM on a Tuesday afternoon, middle of downtown. That is where everybody's yeah. going, walking around for lunch and whatnot. This, I just find that to be, and, and we've seen very recently what happens with stray bullets in this city. So, yeah. I mean, you're telling me you sit in that parking lot all the time. I'm sure there are many other people that can that are listening right now that can relate to that and do the same thing. And you're right. What's happened in the city in the last year? It's it's terrifying. 
Yeah. And it's, it's, you and I discuss every week, we discuss some new crazy story that five years ago we would have been shocked about. You and I are just, there's less and less shock as we talk about these things. I think there is. I, I don't know what the turning point was because there are stories that uh, I, I know how it, I think I thought about it for three or four days after the story in the summer where the woman who eventually um, succumbed to her, her injuries and her burns was like lit on fire by the nope. person at the at the bus station. I can't remember. For me, it was Gabriel. Gabriel, the and boy Gabriel who got in stabbed the winter. randomly yeah. on a Saturday evening yeah. on the TTC. That yeah. was when I thought, okay, that's it. This city is pretty much, it's, nothing surprises me. Yeah. If that can happen, that can happen to any of our children. That could happen to any one of us. Yeah. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. I think you know it's been a long time since we've really dug into um, talking about the COVID-19 pandemic. And and uh, I, 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 honestly, at this point, um, I think the, the last, how would I put it, maybe 18, 20 months on the air. Um, I'm proud of the conversations we've had. I think we asked important questions. I think we demanded answers. Um, we put guests on who spoke responsibly about this. Um, I wish the the first, how would I put it? I wish the first part of 2021, um, we'd done that better. That's the one thing I would say, um, that it was more like the back end of 2021, especially the fall and especially the spring of 22. Remember even where we were last year at this time, a month out of school thinking, I, 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 we don't want masks back on kids in school. We want extracurriculars. We want field trips. We want, we want it to be a normal school year. And we also want to raise an alarm uh, about the amount of learning loss that has taken place. I think I, I spoke to a teacher late in the year and he was really worried. He's an elementary school teacher and he's grade seven. And he was really worried about going into the 22, 23 school year. Because he said, Greg, they, it's not even that the kids didn't study working at home on a monitor, taking school in their own bedrooms. They didn't know how to study. They not only didn't study, they didn't seem to know how. And some of the results are bearing that out now. So where we take kids and where we take their, their learning and socialization is really important. This weekend, there's a global summit of the Worldwide Commission to Educate All Kids Post-Pandemic. Uh, it's happening beginning Saturday, and it's on Sunday as well. And I know our next guest can't make it, but he is uh, advocating for it hard, and he has done this in, in all of our conversations as well. From Ottawa joining us, he is Dr. Quadro Kiramanting. It's great to have you back on Toronto today, sir. Thanks so much for the time. Greg, it's always a pleasure. Great to hear from you. Like I said, 12 months ago, here you are, we're, we're working on a time and you're like, well, I'm dropping my kids off at camp. And that's great because uh, you need you need your uh, your own time, uh, Doc. And at, at the same time, like I said, there were uncertainties last spring in April. I'm sitting there going, I need to be forceful about this to say to our principal and vice principal at my kid's school. We need to make sure we're having a grade eight grad. Kids need to make sure they're having sports. They need to make sure they can go to sleep away camp. Nothing was guaranteed 12, 14 months ago at this time. Oh, man, it was it was alarming and scary. And we were in the province where we knew that uh, there were the longest lockdowns and, and longest school closures. So there was a real concern about creating a sense of normalcy for our kids. And a lot of us were, including yourself, ringing the alarm that our kids need to catch up, they need to feel safe and and in, a, in an environment where they get to thrive again. So many of us, as as you alluded to, were were trying to sound the alarm and to advocate for 
for for our kids to to be in an environment where they can be kids again and you know it, it's reassuring that where we are where we are but i i think you you probably feel a similar way is i i still have this voice in the back of my head is if something happened again along those lines that we, there's no guarantee we've learned from from our mistakes and I, I personally feel that this is a, a good reason to have these conversations, to have these healthy reminders, whether there's another, you know, uh, respiratory illness, whether it is mm -hmm. uh, any other health concern that we can't forget about the kids and we can't forget how to do a risk assessment and, and, and really focus our energies on those that are going to be most at risk. And it didn't take long to realize, Greg, that the kids weren't, weren't at the same level of risk, nowhere near the same level of risk as our high-risk groups. And we needed to leverage that for sure. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, it's described at this conference this weekend as an education catastrophe, and that's in Ontario. So I can imagine in less developed countries, I can imagine where uh, where they were even locked down for longer, how parents feel about this. We The, the statement that drives me the craziest, Doc, was, and we heard this too early on and, until we really started to resist it, kids are resilient. They bounce back. And I'm like, no, they're not. It's linear being a kid. It's linear being a teenager. And you get a finite amount of time to be a 10-year-old or a 13-year-old or a 16-year-old. Our adult years, you're right. They all blend together. You and I can't remember what we had for lunch yesterday. But that's not how 16 and 13-year-olds operate. Yeah, and I couldn't agree more. It was just one of those many narratives that just people that we were hearing to, to, to fit what we'd like in terms of uh, next steps and to continue lockdowns, to continue school closures. And, it, you know, I, I, I could just even speak on a personal level, whether it's my kids or, or friends of my, my kids, that I saw significant impacts of not only their their physical health, their mental health, but also their learning. And and this idea that, yeah, the kids are just resilient, it's, it's, to me it was just a cop-out. Like, it, you know, it, we need to make some tough decisions when we're in a leadership position, when we're running a city, province, country. And and once again, you you got to stick up for those that can't stick up for themselves, and those are the kids. They they, can, they don't have a voice like we can't. They can't come on the radio and say, you know what, I'm struggling. Let's make sure that I have a social network. I want to make sure I do have a good education so that I could create a, a, a superb future for myself. So yeah, I, I really, I really hear this, that, that that excuse wasn't enough, the resilience. And, and, and once again, what I want to hear from, you know, what, what the conference is and the summit is trying to produce, but from our thought leaders and our, our leaders is how do we ca catch our kids up? I, I, I think that needs to be front and center because, you know, these are, as you alluded to many of, Many of our kids are in their primetime years of learning and or were affected in their primetime years of learning. And how do we catch them up? It's a weird one, too, because I think every generation looks at, at their, you know, who their parents were and who their grandparents were. And there can be sort of some simmering resentment. I think we feel that with the environment. I think we look at our parents and we're like, why did why did we awaken to things about our environment that that they didn't seem to care as much about or or whether it's a generation that was 
you know, good with sending, you know, young men and, and young women off to war. Mm. I'm hopeful that we don't have teenagers and people in their early 20s right now looking at their parents and looking at our generation saying, you guys really let us down. Because I do feel like we did. I, I, I don't think that's unfair. And we need to make sure, though we have to, if we ever ever anything like it again, of course we have to take care of our most vulnerable. Of course we have to take care of people who need it the most, who are the most at risk. But we can't ever do what we did again. We can't ever, ever even consider closing schools and 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 keeping kids locked down as long as we as long as we just did. We can't do this ever again. Yeah, I, I it would, I, you know, that's especially that statement. I'm thinking about what you said about our kids holding us, almost like the resentment over the how we how we handle things. I, I think right now, honestly, it's. They're, they're, it's too early for them to, to recognize. Like, mm-hmm. I think this is going to be something that maybe, I don't know how many years down the road, they'll be like, why didn't you guys do more? And I do think that's, I think it's fair. Honestly, I think it's fair. I, I, I think when you look at our options and, and us, a lot of us being not very vocal or most of us not being very vocal and, and sitting on the sidelines there. I, I think that is a, a very fair assessment. And as you said, Greg, you know, it's hard to never say never, but honestly, when we do, when we looked at our, our ways of preparing for pandemics, the school closures aren't typical, aren't part of that protocol. And so I, I really think it would have to take a lot, a lot, a lot to have to do this again. And once again, my, my perspective is, how do we like? I like I like to think of action. Like, what can we do now? Like, I I still want to hear from the higher ups what our our yeah. game plan is to to make sure our kids are where they need to be or and beyond. Yeah, the beyond is is a is a big uh, a big factor. This weekend, it's the Worldwide Commission to Educate All Kids on July 29th and 30th, uh, and it's uh, put together by a number of groups, including 21CQ, the Institute for 21st Century Questions to Project Youth Energy, as well. Uh, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. I know you've got uh, you're an author now. I mean. You know, you got a book coming out. I hope you'll come and talk about your book and the genesis behind it and some of the messages in it in the fall when it uh, gets released. I hope you'll do that for us. Oh, absolutely. And honestly, Greg, part of the reason why I chose to write the book was was this exact issue on uh, leadership and why we need more of it. Well, we'll look forward to it. Thanks, sir. Appreciate the time. Thank you so much, Greg. There's Quadro Curamanting, Dr. Quadro Curamanting, joining us from Ottawa. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. There's a lot of conversation, obviously, about uh, the TDSB, about the uh, the group that they had brought in, and many corporations have brought in this group uh, called the Kojo Institute for some diversity, equity, and inclusion work. Many debates happening right now, I think, in, in educational circles about creating equal opportunity and manufacturing equity. I'm even noticing in the United States, I'm always fascinated um, in, the, in the U.S. about getting into universities. And I was even when, when I lived there. Um, and th- they obviously have something called the SAT, right? You'd see it brought up in movies and whatnot. We don't have that for universities, but a lot of people want to push away from the SAT and go, no, 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 standardized tests aren't fair. But I look at some of the data that they're using and some of the um, variables that they're using to put kids into university now, and a lot of them aren't your marks, and a lot of them 
aren't a standardized test score. They're what I would call non-academic virtues, extracurricular activities. Well, who can do those? Um, more rich kids than poor kids. Um, volunteering. Who's got time for that? Well, well, kids that don't have to work part time. Now, part time jobs are quite admirable when you're 17 or 18. What about personality traits? What about reference letters from influential people? Like those are subjective things and they're not objective things. So if you'd be concerned about diversity, equity, inclusion, I'd figure you'd want, you know, you, you, the last thing you'd want is to rely on subjective grades, extracurriculars, letters from important people and the like. The standardized test is the equalizer. Like these are the things that we're a little lost on, I think, when it comes to education. We want to level the playing field and then give everybody the same shot at success. And 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 then we're, we're doing a lot the wrong way when it comes to implementing DEI. Tasha Carradine was in last week for Alex Pearson uh, and uh, wrote an op-ed about about her friend uh, Richard, who was the uh, principal that took his own life a couple weeks ago. But um, it, a lot had led up to this. It's a tragic story of Richard Bilkstow, uh, who had 24 years experience in the TDSB. And Tasha is kind enough to join us right now. It, it, it is one of those things, by the way, Tasha, where it, it's we've debated equality vis-a-vis equity for a long time in education. I don't know if if Richard's passing, tragic as it is, is going to be a tipping point and we'll have more frank conversations. But maybe we are headed in that direction. Well, I hope we are. Um, you know, it is it is, a, it is tragic. There's, there's no words to to uh, to express how tragic it is. And um, the uh, the equity consulting that he was uh, subjected to, because really it was that. Um, was the kind that goes sort of in direction you're talking about. It's a shaming thing. It's saying that it's you're you know you're you're the problem, as opposed to that everyone can be part of a solution. And I think that is the, the way we have to go. It's it's not about you know Richard and his whiteness. That is that is not the problem. That's not going to help any black kids graduate. Pointing out the fact that he's white. Um, what's going to help black kids graduate? And we know that they graduate in Toronto, for example, at a lower rate than other kids. Kids white kids. Asian kids, kids of South Asian background, they're, you know, indigenous children. There's, there's statistics that the TDSB has compiled, racial statistics, they were actually published in the Toronto Star um, not too long ago, that show that there's a disparity in graduation rates, a disparity in the terms of, of um, college attendance rates. Well, if you look at that, you say, okay, well, what are the elements that people need to change that? And it's not shaming people. It's like you said, it's, it's looking at not just standardized things, but giving the resources to the kids that they're missing, perhaps at home, because of poverty, because mm-hmm. that's really what it's about. It's about poverty. It's not about race. It felt like there was so much during the pandemic, Tasha, where we looked at. And it, that's my struggle sometimes is whether it's school boards, whether it's teachers unions. I, I, I look I, again, I don't want to judge every teacher because they belong to a union. My parents uh, both taught and belong to a union and the union um, gave them security. It gave them a voice. And at the same time, I look and I go, many of these same people are just reckoning now with how unequal the pandemic left our, our educational system, rich kids with Wi-Fi, kids that could afford tutors, kids that potted together and, and, and kept learning because the learning loss is very stark and it goes along uh, socioeconomic lines. It does. And this is why when you look at equity, you say, well, what is real equity? Equity is giving every child the chance, the chance to do as well as the other kids. So the rich kid and the poor kid, what does that mean? Like you said, if a rich kid's not doing well in school, the parents will hire a tutor mm-hmm. to raise their standard. Um, the poor child will not have that opportunity. Uh, the rich kid gets good food at home. 
and the poor child may not be getting that food. The rich kid will get extracurricular sports. The poor child may not get physical education. All these things are factors, like phys ed in particular, we know, we know is actually a way of raising the bar academically. Kids who do more physical activity, more sports will do, well, we cut that in schools everywhere for everybody. I think that's a tragedy in itself. But the point is that the other things can be remedied. You can, instead of these equity and inclusion courses, spend the money giving tutors to low-income children who need them. Identify the kids in the class and say, you know, uh, Jane is failing math or, I don't know, Fred is, is doing badly at, at, uh, at English or whatever it is. And say, okay, well, that kid needs extra help. And the school board will provide that help if the parents can't. That is the kind of thing I think that would be doing far more for children today from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, whatever their color, to do well in school and then to graduate and to go on to whatever career they choose. Tasha Carradin is our guest on Toronto Today on 640 Toronto. Her op-ed's in the National Post. Um, the involvement of the, the province now and the involvement of the education minister, where do you think it goes? Well, the education minister has pledged specifically to look at what happened in DEI. He has said that he is going. they're investigating to find out what happened here. Um, bring me, he says, literally, bring me options to reform professional training and strengthen accountability on school boards so this never happens again. So there are two things there. One is reform the way these, this kind of training is delivered um, and professional training in general. What, are, what, are, what is a professional day for teachers? What are they learning that will help the children, not, you know, this sort of stuff? And strengthen accountability on school boards. What does that mean? Does that mean that trustees will be held to a different standard? Because right now, I'll tell you, I mean, a trustee in the city is paid very, very little money to do a very big job for which, honestly, you have to say, are they all qualified? Is this you know, it is a position that you run for many times. People run for it to go to higher office. I hate to say it. Mm-hmm. Other people are in it for the good things, but not everyone is. So reforming maybe the way trustees, the, the concept of a trustee, it's a broad mandate that he's actually given himself. I don't know if he realizes that, but there's a lot of people who will be watching this and holding his feet to the fire on it. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. Like I try and compare, my kids are both in high school now, I try and compare it to my high school experience. And I realize there are some teachers that were more, I won't call them activist, but they were more active talking about politics, an election result from the night before, or something that just sort of strayed from the curriculum. And some teachers were like, I'm just here for phys ed. I'm just here for math, physics. I'm going to teach you the basics. And I think more than enough, look, we had, we had a five alarm fire in, in terms of learning loss. You must be hearing from parents, even at the primary level, that say math, English, reading, comprehend. We, we need the basics absolutely emphasized. And I think we went into last fall. We should have had been running around noticing the fire and sounding alarms. And, and we just didn't do it. I think the curriculum just stayed the same. Well, the curriculum has to change. Yes, the provincial government has promised to change the curriculum. They, they're bringing back they bring back handwriting. And some people said, oh, well, you know, why? What a waste. Uh-uh. Again, it goes to sort of motor development and learning and basically the, the, the relationship between the physical and the mental, which is something we ignored in schools. You actually remember things better when you write them down by hand. You yeah. may not realize it, but you do. So for kids, it's important to have certain concepts really drilled in when they're young so they feel confident when they're older. They don't need to relearn those things. You know, math isn't about self-exploration. This whole concept of discovery math, I went through that with my daughter. She's, in, she's way into high school now. And I was like, you know, this, this idea of doing math in groups, like, no, these kids have to learn basic stuff so they can build on it like a foundation of a house. 
We have to get back to that. So there has to be more of that. But there also has to be a recognition. Kids don't learn in a violent environment. And that is something that is out of control in our schools. That, to me, is, is job one. There's academics and, and the learning piece and violence. Those and, are the two things. And I got that from your writing. And I hear from parent, from principals, VPs all the time. We yeah. can't punish kids. We can't suspend them. We can't. If they're tearing up the classroom, we have to let them. And I'm, I'm thinking, I, you know, I don't know how old school we want to get, but that would never, ever, ever happen if people were breaking windows, throwing desks, uh, you know, hurting other kids teacher hands on that kid until they're in a safe position until everybody else in the class is safe you don't evacuate the classroom and let somebody tear the classroom up at 5 15 or any age you can't do it right well the issue too is we have a lot of kids with special needs that were not in schools before who Mm -hmm. are and there's a recognition that all children deserve an education and i do believe that but also as a parent of a child who has a a, not a learning disability she has a different brain function. She's autistic. Um, she's not one of those kids who ever acted out. But I have great empathy for parents who have those children. Mm. But at the same time, you have to recognize not every child can be integrated into a classroom because, like you said, some kids cannot handle the stress of a the classroom. They will act out and it will impact all other children. So it doesn't mean that treating kids differently is wrong. Yeah. In some cases, they have to be so that they can also learn and not feel stressed out by things as basic as fluorescent lights and too much noise and this sort of thing that can set them off. Uh, it's in the National Post. Tasha Carradine's op-ed. Thanks for this time, Tasha. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. It's one of those weird things because I don't know that people were thinking, well, Sinead O'Connor's going to get back out there and there'll be an album and a video and a big tour and I know people will look and say um, we're going to play a clip for people on the um, on on the Pope front. And this was spring. I think it's late 92, early 93. And I lived with six guys in 1992, 93 and 1993, 94 in a house on Richmond Street in London. And we'd watch Saturday Night Live. And sometimes we were had already been out for dinner. We'd go out afterwards. We were close knit house most of the time. But I, I think at least five of us sat there. And watched her tear up the picture of the Pope together. And for what what doesn't shock us now in 30 years ago, that was like, holy cow, that wasn't supposed to happen. Nobody applauded. People gasped in the audience. It, it was one of the most memorable live things I think I'd, I'd ever seen. Here's Sinead O'Connor explaining why she did that. But I knew what I was on about ripping up the picture, and I knew it was connected with child abuse, and that's what this, what people also don't talk about is the song that was sung, which the ripping of the picture was an illustration to, um, which is a song about, it was a Bob Marley song about racism, but I changed it to child abuse. Yeah, uh, and Sheba, I think Sinead O'Connor was at the forefront of a lot of issues regarding child abuse, regarding feminism. I think she was a trailblazer. I think... It, it changed how we viewed Alanis Morissette, or I think it changed other solo artists right mm. now. But I'd, I'd make the point, she, but she didn't want to be Beyonce, and she didn't want to be Taylor Swift. And it's okay that they want to be who they are, and out there and playing stadiums. I just don't think that ever appealed to Sinead O'Connor. I really don't. No, she's known for saying and speaking about how she didn't want, and people are saying, you're throwing your career away. And she would say, no, I'm throwing away your brand new fancy house in Southern California. Whoever these execs were, she said, that's that's who they're they're worried about their own careers and their own financial situation. She said, I'm just fine where I am. She didn't want to be a global superstar, even though nothing compares to you did make her one. Do you know who wrote that song? Of I know you do. Prince. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Prince wrote that song uh, and she... I mean, I think that's what put her on the map, really. She was pretty famous in, in Ireland, in, in England for a while, but that's, I think, what made her really well-known. But she did struggle. She did have her struggles, right, with mental health. I think her parents, she had a difficult childhood. Her parents separated when she was eight years old. Uh, her mom and then abused from, her. Yes, her, yeah. her mom physically abused her. So that's why she was always advocating for abused children. Uh, and then at, when she was 15 years old, she spent 18 months at an asylum. Because uh, she became a difficult child, quote unquote, uh, she was shoplifting. So they were really trying to figure out what you know what was wrong with her, what how to I quote unquote fix her. Uh, but she did have a musical talent, and that's what she led with. That's what she lived with. Like I, I, th- I think that's so well said by you. And I think you know would she have been considered by some people? I think some people had the narrative then at the time that though we would never have used this phrase, we would never put the words um, cancel and culture together in 1993. I think some people are looking at this now going, was she an early victim of this? But I don't see it that way. I don't doubt she lost fans with what she did and some of the things she said. Like, honestly, I I was watching a couple interviews last night. She was on with Arsenio Hall. And you're kind of meant to keep it light with Arsenio in 1991. And she just couldn't. She was like, we rape each other. We abuse each other. We're terrible to each other. Society's awful. And and he's sort of like, you know, he wants to be like, what are you going to wear to the Grammys? Like, he's not. Well, we don't want to hear that. We We don't want to hear that sometimes. So it was was, the best way I can put it, Sheba. It was almost sort of an early uh, and we know how offensive this this phrase ended up getting with LeBron James and, and uh, Fox News' Laura Ingram. Instead of shut up and dribble, shut up and sing. Make me happy. Do the songs yes. I like. Don't talk about anything else. Don't talk about your mental health struggles. Don't talk about stuff that's going on. Famine. Don't, don't stuff that uh, stuff that's Bono even got a little bit of this. Like, just sing me my songs and stop preaching at me. There was yes. a little bit more of this in the but music industry. But she didn't industry. care. She didn't That's care. That's the thing. She didn't care. She pushed back. Do you remember in 2013 when she wrote that open letter to Miley Cyrus? Right. Right. Yes, she wrote a letter to Cyrus saying, talking about how warning her of treatment of women in the music industry, uh, telling Cyrus that she's allowing herself to be pimped by music executives. Uh, and she got a lot of backlash for saying that. And one of the first, uh, 1990. So this is early... Like, I remember, so Mandinka was a single that was had, had some real rock beat to it in 1988. And I'm like, okay, this is great. And then I met, but I remember hearing Nothing Compares to You on the radio and thinking, you don't know how someone's second album is going to be in the music industry and, and whether they're going to find that. And you're like, oh, this is just going to be massive. And like I said, that summer, that song's on the radio every 10 minutes. The video's on. She generates a tear in the video. Uh, it's just, it's all the video is is a close up of the face. Even the shaved head. But the even shaved the shaved head, head was head, not. That's an act of rebellion in itself, right? You got there, it. At that time of, of, you know, nobody had a shaved head back then. No woman did. No, just that one woman in Star Trek, the original Star and, Trek. And movie. Demi Moore. And Remember Demi, Demi Moore? But that's before G.I. Jane. Yep. Oh, it was. Or before yeah, so Chris true. Rock was making jokes about G.I. Jane and then getting <laughs> walloped himself. Here's here's something else she did that I forgot about. She stated she would not perform if the U.S. national anthem was played before one of her concerts. And Frank Sinatra, then alive, threatened to, quote, kick her in the ass, which, again, oh. that'd be a good Twitter feud. But I don't think Frank Sinatra would have had a Twitter account had Twitter been around back then. But that she like could take him. She, <laughs> of course she could. She could. I think she's she Irish, so people. there's that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, like I, I never looked at it and thought, oh, like Sinead O'Connor got robbed of, you know, playing Bud Stage every two years. She didn't want to do that. Like, no, like, she didn't. I don't think she looked at it that way either. 
No. It's, but it does seem like she was always searching for something. In 2007, she was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. She had multiple suicide attempts. Uh, her son, Shane, unfortunately, did. Uh, he committed suicide. He was 13 years old. Uh, or sorry, she lost custody of him when he was 13. And then at, at the age of 17, I believe it was last year, he did die by suicide. Uh, so she's had a lot of turmoil. She's had a lot of you know, difficulties in her life. Uh, and then, and then it was retracted. She had other doctors tell her, I believe in, uh, the early 2015 that she was, she was not in fact bipolar. So, uh, it just seems like she had a lot. There was a lot of back and forth. She became a priest and then she, she converted, I think to Islam. Like she's, yes. she was just, there's relig- a famous <laughs> picture of her wearing a hijab, right? All tons of, the of them internet. in the last several yes. years. Yeah. Yes. Uh, but who knows? Like we, she was never, you're right. There was so much hot and cold with her. I don't think anybody really knew who she truly was. Maybe those who were closest to her. She was always begging for them to help her. Yeah. That was one thing she was very public about is asking her family to help her. Her first ever show was April of 1988 at the Diamond Club. Uh, and her last ever show was in 2014 at uh, the uh, un- unbelievably uh, awesome Massey Hall. So she, you know, she had her Toronto moments here. That's for sure.